to Proverbs chapter 4. This evening we'll look at verses 20 to 27. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 to 27. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Do not let them escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them, healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance. For from, from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech. Put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. And turn your foot away from evil. If your house were on fire... You could only grab one object, what would it be? Think about it, but don't think too quickly, because if a fire were to take place, you would not have a lot of time for consideration. In uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's short story, A Scandal in Bohemia, uh, Sherlock Holmes has been tasked with recovering a scandalous picture from the American opera singer Irene Adler. Of course, the real challenge that is set before Sherlock Holmes in that story is to determine where she has hidden it. So Holmes and Watson pair have visited her estate, and the solution, of course, from Holmes's perspective is simple. That while he is meeting with Irene Adler, his companion, Watson, is to start a fire. Someone shouts, fire! With Holmes's eyes set on Adler, he sees where her eyes immediately turn. As they're in the room, she, her eyes, almost un, subconsciously, they glance, even if briefly, at the item of, located behind one of the pieces of furniture. And Holmes, of course, has deduced where she's hidden it. And of course, as you read the story, you understand why it is. It's the thing that she treasures most as the house is, uh, uh, um, as she understands it, of course, it wasn't a full-on fire, but... As the house potentially was going to come crashing down, it, the crisis exposed the very thing that she treasured the most. I hear Solomon calls us to ponder the things that we treasure above all. And so I think it's important for us to ask ourselves, what is it that we actually do treasure? And to ask ourselves whether or not it aligns with what God is calling us to treasure. And hear what Solomon, under inspiration of the Spirit, is calling us to keep and to guard above all things, is the heart. He does that for a particular reason. So I'd like us to consider uh, this passage. We're going to consider it in three particular sections because three times he tells us to keep something. First, he tells us to keep the word. You'll see that in verses 20 to 22. Secondly, to keep the heart in verses, uh, verse 23. And then finally, ooh, to keep the way. All right. Well, time's up. Um, At least it wasn't a fire, you know, it's uh... <laughs> Well, the passage here begins like every other new unit in Proverbs. There's a command here, right, to listen carefully. You know, if you were uh, on the verge of falling asleep, now you, have, now you are without excuse. Um, 
because the, the clock has struck. Um, but here we're told to listen carefully. And it is a reminder to us. This is the, the fourth or fifth time we've seen in this book that a passage, in fact, nearly every new unit begins with this particular phrase, pay attention. And it reminds us uh, the nature of wisdom. Wisdom does not come from within. Wisdom comes from without. How often do we think that we're going to need outside counsel? How often uh, do we try to prove ourselves uh, that, that we don't need any help? You know, there's the, the, the classic trope that you see in, those, uh, in comedies of, of the, the father taking his family on a, a road trip, and he, they get lost, and, and uh, the wife keeps saying, well, you need to stop and ask for directions. He goes, no, 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 I know the way. I don't need anybody to tell me where to go or what to do. Uh, and of course, he gets further and further lost. That's the great snare of adolescence as well, the, the idea that we think we know it all. There's that great quote uh, in saying from Mark Twain, he says, when I was 14, my father was so ignorant I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. Right, it's a disposition, I think, that carries well into old age. We think we already know it all when the reality is that we are called to listen up. We need a wisdom that comes from outside of ourselves, wisdom that comes to us from God's Word. And that's what Solomon is telling us here. Keep my instruction in your heart. Solomon tells his son to keep it safe, keep the Word safe. It's like a guarded treasury. It's like the tablets within the ark. Do not lose them. It's a sober reminder regarding the value of Christian instruction. This is not a peripheral feature to wise living. Rather, it's biblical instruction that is given to us, this biblical instruction is central to faith and to life. Keep, well, Solomon's saying, keep my word, keep it within your heart. You know, Charles Bridges, in commenting on this uh, uh, passage, puts it like this, a neglected Bible is the melancholy proof of the heart that has been alienated from God. Keep the word. Treasure it deep in your heart. Why should we keep the word? Well, it's because it is of inestimable value. It's described here, in one sense, as an elixir. A wisdom that is both spiritual and physical. It's something that brings healing to both body and to soul, right? The, the wisdom that Solomon is providing here is not some abstract, esoteric thought. It is immensely practical, uh, with an acuity that brings healing both to body and soul, as, the, uh, as it promises to give life to both. Uh, you, you notice here that the repetition of uh, the, the parts of the body in this passage. It is the ear, the eyes, the hands, the heart, the feet. Uh, this is uh, an embodied wisdom, we might say. Solomon will elaborate on the mental, emotional, and physical value that God's Word brings throughout the rest of Proverbs, right? For the, the fool who continues to fraternize with other women, Solomon war, uh, warns that it is like sticking a fire to your chest, because if the husband finds out, his jealous rage will spell the end of you. For the sluggard who fails to follow the path of wisdom, he will starve and die. But if he listens to the counsel of wisdom, he will, in fact, live. Again, very simply put, Solomon here is talking about the nature of repentance and faith. Turning from sin 
Sin that bears significant physical, emotional, mental, as well as spiritual consequences. As we are called to turn from sin and walk in the fear of the Lord. And so Solomon say here, keep my saying, keep the word. The very things that I am telling to you, keep it, guard it. Keep it safe as a treasure chest. And within that treasure chest, treasure it. Place the Word in your heart. As the tablets in the ark, keep the heart. and Keep the Word in the heart. You see that here in verse 23. More than all that is to be guarded, keep watch over your heart. So we have to ask ourselves, what of course is the heart? Simply put, it is this for um, maybe just a good reminder, the importance of Craig Troxell's book that we read together as a church last year. What is the heart? It is the command center of who we are. It is the central hub. It is the seat of our affections, our reasoning, and our will. Charles Bridges describes the heart as the citadel of man. It's like a fortress. If the heart is captured, if the heart is captivated by an outside force, the war is lost. And so you are called to keep the heart above all things. Jesus describes the heart as this. It is the principal seat of sin and holiness. It is the place from which proceeds evil thoughts and murders, adultery, sexual immorality, thefts, fault witness, and slanders. Of course, we all know the mouth is connected to the heart in many sense. What it, uh, it, um, uh, dwells in the heart cannot but kind of burst out of the mouth in some way, shape, or form. There is a movement when it comes to thinking about who we are Uh, as people, as men, and as women, where what resides in the heart works its way out into our words and our works as streams that burst forth from a fountain. The bitter heart bursts forth into murderous expressions and actions. The lustful heart directs the eyes to see things that it should not, and to engage the rest of the body in things that have been prohibited. The greedy heart seeks to take what rightfully belongs to another. The envious heart manipulates the truth to exalt the self and to destroy the other. If the well is poisoned, so also the streams. It's a great danger. You know, if uh, somebody were to dump a whole um, carton of chemicals uh, into a local stream, you might be safe if the chemicals were dumped at the end of the stream, but if they're dumped at the source, the whole place is, the whole thing is con- contaminated. You know, how many of us would say, well, you know, there's just a couple drops of arsenic in my glass of water, so it must not be that big a deal. Once it's polluted, you're in trouble. And that is what the heart is. It is the wellspring of life. And so Solomon commands here in verse 23 to to keep the heart with vigilance. Quite literally, the Hebrew reads, more than all your guardings, guard the heart. What is it that you treasure more than anything? It should be your heart. What does it look like to keep the heart? The heart, the place, the citadel where God's Word is to reside. Nothing else takes higher priority. Right, to use Star Trek lingo, this is our prime directive. 
It is the organizing principle for all that we do. With all vigilance as the man standing guard on the watchtower, if your heart is captivated by sin, the citadel will fall. The springs of life will burst forth unto death. And of course, here I think we begin to recognize that there's a great difficulty, isn't there? Because to keep the heart, you must know the heart. And yet, as the further and, and, and the more we begin to examine our heart, we recognize uh, and simply confirm what Scripture already tells us is that the heart is uh, exceedingly wicked. It is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? You know, it's so deceitful that it deceives the self. It sounds like a tautology, but it's worth reminding. Deception deceives. It's the great difficulty of self-deception. You can be deceived and not even realize that you've deceived yourself. I think there's a reason then why Solomon does not say follow your heart. Contrary to every you know, 80s and 90s pop song on the radio. If you follow your own heart, it will lead you astray. Rather, what Solomon says, you are to keep the heart. Not follow it. You're to stand guard over it to make sure that nothing wicked comes this way. You think of what Job says. says. I've made a covenant with my eyes. I will not look upon another woman. He recognizes that adultery does not begin in the act. It begins in the heart. And so he takes great vigilant care to ensure that sin does not arise and begin there and, and when the, the hydra of sin uh, 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 when the hydra of sin uh, when its head kind of emerges from the deep um, job is quick to cut off that head to mortify sin you can think of it like the old what was it, the old whack-a-mole games you have at showbiz pizza or chuck e cheese i guess is what they call it these days Right, that's, that's what sin is. You have, to be, you have to stand ever vigilant. The hedgehog sticking his head out of the golf hole. You have to be ready to smack it in the head as soon as it pops up. That's why keeping and treasuring this outside word is so critical. We need that outside wisdom to show us where we are even deceiving ourselves. That's why David will say, I have treasured your word. I have stored it up in my heart, O God, so that I might not sin against you. The Word serves as that spotlight that exposes the dark crevices of what lurks inside. The Word is that light that is more trustworthy than the whims of our own emotional states. It is brighter than our own darkened thoughts. And it is more sure than our own corrupted will. God's Word is the light that instructs us practically in the path we should go. And so the, t the king tells us here to keep the word in our hearts, and secondly, to keep that heart in which the word is stored, and then finally here, to keep the way which that treasured word leads. You see that here in verses 24 to 27. Right. Uh, Solomon here is not contending for this kind of paralyzing, morbidly introspective, mystical kind of leading here, when it says that the word will lead you and guide you. You know, this is not a, you know, Lord, where should I go today, Taco Bell or Wendy's for lunch? This is not that kind of leading of which David is speaking. This is a, there, there's a moral orientation to this leading. The path that we are called to walk. Above all else, it is practical. 
Notice the repeated imagery again throughout this passage. The mouth, the lips, the eyes, the pupils, the feet. Again, this is not this academic, esoteric, ivory tower, abstract philosophy kind of wisdom. It is eminently practical for the kids, the youngest kids in here, to the oldest uh, saint in the room. This is practical wisdom for godliness. This is a wisdom that governs the things that we do and the things that we do not say. You see that very, uh, here in verse 24, that you are to remove deception and crooked speech from your lips. And Bruce Walkey, in commenting on this passage, puts it like this, Proverbs is full of straight talk about talking straight. Proverbs teaches you how to be the straight shooter, as it were, with the things that you say. But not just the things that we say, but the things that we watch. Those objects that clamor for our full attention. We are not to be like Eve, whose attention was directed towards those forbidden things. Remember as Satan says, hey, look at the forbidden fruit. And what does Scripture say? As soon as she saw that it was a delight to the eyes and something to be coveted, we see sin beginning to take root. The entry point to sin comes through the eyes and into the heart, and she wanted it. We are not to be like Lot's wife, who even as hell itself overtook Sodom, and she's being miraculously delivered from the city. What does she do? She wants to take one last glance at the city of sin. And it leads to her own destruction. Here's a wisdom that governs not just what we say, not just what we watch, but a wisdom that leads and governs the very places that we should go. It is a walk that is purposed and directional where even our minor decisions are guided by the ultimate goal. In verse 5, 25 and verse 26, it speaks of that, that purposed, intentional gaze. Eyes fixed straight ahead like flint. You know, if you've ever been on a family vacation through the mountains, I remember when I was a kid, uh, my dad driving us up to the Great Smokies. Um, and we'd, we'd take these twists and turns and uh, my dad was a, at one point a youth pastor, and he'd drive this big van on like the youth ski trip. And, uh, and of course, there'd be girls in the van who were just scared of the twists and turns. And my dad would say, oh, guys, look over there as he's driving these twists and turns. And himself would look, and all the girls would start screaming. They'd say, "What? Well, keep your eyes straight on the road. But isn't that what sin does? As we're called to walk the straight and narrow, there's these bright, shiny objects, the big neon lights, that are promising so much life, so much happiness, saying, oh, it, the path you're going, isn't it boring? You think of Pinocchio. And all the boys who are led astray. This is not a casual joyride for the Christian. There's no place in the wise life for spiritual ADHD be so easily distracted by the things to the left or the right. I remember uh, I, was, uh, I used to cycle a lot. This is like 50 pounds ago, but I, you know, when I was in, in, in seminary uh, in, in Philadelphia, and I'd ride the Wissick and Trail like, several times a week, this like, 30-mile ride, whatever, not 
too much. But for me, it was a lot. I took all summer to get up to it. But I remember riding my bike down the Wissahickon Trail up from Chestnut Hill down to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And as, I, as I'm riding my bike, eyes straight ahead, I see this guy running towards me. And as he gets closer, I realize it was a, uh, a fellow classmate from seminary. And he goes, oh, hey, Charles. And I go, oh, hey, Paul. And as I wave and turn, of course, with the direction of my eyes, turn the direction of my hands. What happens when you're riding a bike rather quickly and you turn like this? Next thing you know, I end up in the bushes. Wasn't embarrassing at all. And yet, isn't that what happens? Isn't that what sin does? Sometimes it's not even the indulging of the sin. It's just the distraction itself that can lead us to destruction. So verse 26, ponder the path of your feet. Quite literally, the text here is something like dig a path for your feet. It's this kind of entrenched, forward-moving stance. It is an entrenched walk as the pleasures of sin lie both to the right and the left, as those neon lights and the bright shiny objects of this world try to avert our gaze and lure us away from the straight and narrow. Solomon says, keep your eyes fixed right in front of you. It requires a person of an intentionality and conviction one who is purposed not to veer to the right or to the left. In fact, notice the end of verse 27. It's not simply keep your feet from evil. It actually says here in verse 27, keep your foot from evil. In other words, every step matters. In one sense, we could call this section Psalm 1 on steroids. As Solomon is simply telling us here what we heard in the first psalm, not to walk in the counsel of the wicked. But here, don't even contemplate their path. Again, Charles Bridges commenting here, and Charles Bridges is my favorite commentator on, on Proverbs. Um, if, you, if you don't have it, it's worth reading. Um, 18th century uh, Anglican uh, minister. It's easy to get. Get it. <laughs> I mean, still come to church, of course. But it's, it's worth having in your library. Charles Bridges says this, he says, Beware of mistaking presumption for faith, temptations for providential disappointments, never forsake a plane for a doubtful command, estimate every step by its conformity to the known will of God. We are to uh, govern our steps according to the will of God, and the only way we're going to know God's will is to know God's word, not just superficially, so much so that it is the treasure of our treasure. It is the heart of our own heart. The thing that resides deepest, deepest in our core. And yet, Charles Bridges adds one more thing. He says that we should not divert from the path that God has called His people to walk, even if a cross lies in the way. That's the greatest danger, isn't it? Our own disposition our own deceitful hearts that are disposed to self-centered self-preservation. When the call of Christian discipleship runs so contrary to that, as we are called to walk the path of self-denial, denying ourselves daily, taking up our cross daily, and following Christ. How insightful is it that in the Gospels, as Jesus makes His way to Jerusalem, 
There are these repeated attempts that come to Jesus to try to distract him from making his way to the cross. You see this most pointedly in in Luke's gospel. The, the, The structure to Luke's gospel is what we might call a travelogue. It is a travel narrative as Jesus makes his way north down to the city of Jerusalem. And as he makes his way in this kind of threefold structure to the gospel, each step along the way, there are people who come in his path and say, don't go that way. First, you have Satan. He says, no, no, why do you, you don't need to go to the path of the cross. Just bow down before me and I'll give you the very thing that you want, the kingdoms of this earth. Jesus, of course, rebuffs Satan's advances, continues to make his way to Jerusalem. And then the Pharisees say, oh, you don't want to go to Jerusalem. Herod wants to kill you. Even though at this point in the story, there's no uh, actual mention of Herod actually wanting to kill Jesus at this point. This is Herod Agrippa. Seems as though the Pharisees themselves are lying, carrying on the serpentine temptation to keep Jesus from the cross. And then Jesus makes it even further. He rebuffs their advances. And what happens? Jesus tells his disciples what he must do. And what is it that Peter says? Forbid it, Lord, that this should ever happen to you. Do not go to Jerusalem. Do not go to the cross. Jesus himself even has to rebuke Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, for you do not know the things of God. And then it says that Jesus set his face like flint towards Jerusalem. There is a purposed intentionality to the walk and path of Jesus' life as he makes his way to the cross. As he refuses to bow down to Satan and be, to refuse to be governed by the fear of men. As he refuses to heed the foolish counsel even of his closest friends. Rather, Christ becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. that the wellspring of our hearts might be cleansed from the pollution of sin. That we might follow Him in obedience to God's instruction and God's Word. To love Him from the heart with our whole heart. That all we love, that all we think, that all we do would be oriented according to this principle. The fear of the Lord to the glory of God. This reminds us over and over again that the path of wisdom is in fact the path of the cross. So keep the word, treasure it in your heart, and walk the highway of holiness. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would bless this word and that we would, above all things, keep the heart. That we would treasure your word in our heart and guard it, that we might not sin against you, and that you would use your word to lead us in your righteousness. We ask these things in Christ's name.